We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Mars. Of all the things that St. Louis is known for, beer has to be at or near the top of the list. It has been a long and rich tradition of making the Sudsy Brew, and there is also history in the making as craft brewers are making their presence felt. In fact, the craft beer phenomenon is growing at such a rate that the third edition of a St. Louis beer history book is just out. It's titled, St. Louis Brews, The History of Brewing in the Gateway City. It's compiled by Henry Herbst, Kevin Cuse, and Don Roussin, and Cameron Collins. Cameron Collins joins me in studio. Nice to see you again. Thanks for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Why a third edition? Well, uh, several reasons, uh, and you've already mentioned one of them. Uh, the craft beer scene is thriving in St. Louis today. Uh, the first edition of the book uh, contained nine additional breweries other than Anheuser-Busch, of course. Uh, that was 10 years ago. The second book uh, had about 16, and in this one, we put more than 70. So we added all of those breweries. And also another reason is the second edition of the book uh, burned in a big warehouse fire back in November. That it's you may Reedy, recall. Reedy Press. Reedy Press, yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. So obviously you had to get some more books out. Uh, they've been selling very well too, haven't they? They have, yeah. What is, what is St. Louis's fascination with beer? Well, I, personally, I believe it goes back to its uh, rich German heritage, uh, you know, going back to the 1840s, uh, where St. Louis turned into almost a, a German enclave overnight. And with them, they brought their customers who were thirsty for a, uh, a new style of beer that we know as lager. And that gave rise to countless breweries where uh, in the 1870s, uh, Anheuser-Busch rose to the top of that heap. And and although, except for a little hiccup with Anheuser-Busch InBev, uh, we are still there. So, What about the German fascination with beer? Do we know anything about that? It, it, we really do, and it's, uh, it's a fascinating story, uh, and we tell it uh, in the book. Uh, about how St. Louis really, you know, in American colonial times, ale was the type of beer that was preferred, table beer and small beer. And when the Germans came, uh, they had this new style that uh, was drank cold instead of warm. It was perfect for St. Louis with our caves underneath the city. And... Uh, you know, all the Germans in town just started drinking it like crazy. The, the German tradition is is such, I know a little bit about it, is that uh, almost every town had its own brewery. And that kind of uh, kind of uh, came true here, too. There were a lot of breweries early on, weren't there? There, there really were. And they started off really as, as neighborhood operations yeah. where your the, the beer you produced uh, was probably distributed about as far as your horse could walk that day. And, uh, you know, they would make a couple barrels, you know, and, and serve it to customers. That's how Adam Lemp, Johann Adam Lemp, got his start. He made vinegar and beer. 
in his grocery, and people started buying the beer, and he decided to become a brewer full-time. Well, I think most people think that Anheuser-Busch were, were the first kids on the block in this game, but that was far from the truth. Far from the truth. <clears throat> and it really, uh, they were, I even want to say that in around uh, in the 1860s, um, they were probably, you know, like ranked lower than 20th in total mm. output. It wasn't until Adolphus Bush arrived on the scene uh, and really took Budweiser to the next step in the 1870s when he just, everything from marketing and advertising to technological advancements that um, he just, you know, shot Budweiser, their flagship brand at the top. Mm. But yeah, you're right. The earlier breweries, guys like Joseph Urig and Julius Winkelmeyer were the guys mm. that established the foundation of brewing in St. Louis. You uh, refer often in the book to the glory days. And I guess Anheuser-Busch is so closely associated because that was right right at the heart of the glory days of the beer industry. It, it was. And we had St. Louis. We had, of course, we're not, we're, we haven't even mentioned uh, the Western Brewery, which was, of course, uh, Lemp, who introduced Falstaff. And those two brands would, you know, come to dominate the 20th century, of course. Um, but the glory days of St. Louis Brewing in the 1880s and 1890s, you had these giant brewers in South St. Louis. But then you had substantial brewers like, uh, you know, Ellis Wainwright and, and the Stiefels and these just wonderful names that you come upon. And they, you know, a couple times tried to consolidate and, and pool their resources to take on uh, the big guys, and so you just had this city filled with breweries. It must have been very competitive. It, it really was, and, yeah. and that's exactly uh, the smaller breweries attempted to consolidate twice, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, you know to take on. But Budweiser or Anheuser Busch and Lemp really were leading the charge, and they and they they couldn't quite do it. And of course. Prohibition then plays a big role in all of that. Yeah. The the uh, Lemp name, of course, is still well known uh, here mm-hmm. in St. Louis. But uh, I gather from what I've read of your book that he was really the kingpin uh, mm-hmm. for a good part of that uh, middle of the uh, 19th century. Yeah. Well, uh, Adam Lemp uh, is called the father of lager in St. Louis. And some people believe that he was the first to brew lager in the United States. And uh, he was the first to utilize the caves beneath the city. And uh, he was, you know, and when his son, William Lemp, took over in 1862, uh, they opened the big complex in South St. Louis that still stands today. Might we say that he was more important uh, to the beer uh, industry in St. Louis than Anheuser and Bush? I would say Adolphus Bush is a tough guy to top. He was... um, and actually, Everhard Anheuser, who was Adolphus Bush's father-in-law, uh, he was a soap and candle maker. He wasn't a brewer. Uh, but when uh, his daughter, Lily, married Adolphus and, and they became 50-50 partners in the business, uh, Adolphus really changed the game. But definitely the Lemps are uh, a huge part of, of St. Louis brewing history. Do we have any sense of what beer brewed at that time tasted like? Uh, yeah, actually, the if you were to, it was uh, in terms of the lager that was produced mm. at that time, uh, Anheuser-Busch and Lemp actually, part of the reason why their brands really took off is because they started producing a lighter, crisper lager that... Uh, and also was more uniform from bottle to bottle. 
they started automating their processes and so forth. So if you opened a can, a bottle of Budweiser, it would taste like a bottle of Budweiser before. The earlier brewers, you know, it was a lot, maybe some of the smaller guys were even doing a lot of things by hand. Um, they may have thrown in some ingredients and so forth if they if a batch didn't taste quite right. Uh, and uh, it was darker and heavier than the crisper beers that Budweiser and Lemp started making. Can we assume that you each bottle tasted the same? With uh, Budweiser and, and – Yeah, with individual uh, yeah, uh, the, brands. Those brands, I believe you could, especially yeah. when they really started going into more advanced – You know, when they started doing the pasteurization and they had their processes down pat. But uh, the the little guys on the on the street corners – I bet you it was a it was a gamble every time you opened one of their bottles. Of course, one of the big moments in in, in this whole in, industry and the whole story is refrigeration. When that came in, it really changed the ball game, didn't it? It really changed everything. <clears throat> uh, it allowed you know basically artificial refrigeration allowed the brewers to brew their beer year round. They no longer had to use the caves I keep mentioning, mm-hmm. and most importantly. Uh, it allowed for transportation. And Budweiser, Anheuser-Busch, and Lemp really took this uh, to heart, and uh, they could transport their products further distances by using refrigerated rail cars. Uh, when after Budweiser um, was introduced and the re- refrigerated rail car was introduced, Budweiser had its beer in Colorado within a year. Yeah. So. We know what uh, Anheuser-Busch over the years has done in the way of marketing and how successful that's been. But when did the uh, the marketing that you mentioned earlier really get started? Uh, in the 1880s. That's when the breweries really started uh, trademarking their logos and their brand names and so forth. And that's where you start to see uh, you know, some legal issues arise for some brewers who were like Joseph Urig started using the brand name Budweiser for one of his beers and Anheuser-Busch went after him for that. Uh, but yeah, and that's when you start to see uniformity with their, with their labeling and so forth. Um, but yeah, that was right around the same time that a lot of those technological advancements were happening. That Budweiser name has been kind of a nuisance ever since, hasn't it? Didn't they just go through this business with the, the Czech Republic uh, town of Budweiser? I believe so, yes. Yeah. 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 Well, let's, let's move it along just a little bit. In terms of the marketing uh, process, my understanding is that there was a period of time when, let's just say Anheuser-Busch, just to, just to name one, they would have their own saloons all over town mm-hmm. and only their product was sold there. Tell me a little bit about that. Right. And that's a fascinating part of the story is they would, you know, uh, saloons and, and taverns in St. Louis, Budweiser would pay for everything. They would pay for the bar. They'd pay for the furniture. and, and uh, But they had to, that saloon in return would exclusively sell uh, that product. Uh, recently I had, uh, I gave a presentation on beer history at, at, uh, Pat's, Pat Connolly Tavern on mm-hmm. Oakland. And oh, yeah. he told me all about how the bar used to be a Grisadec Brothers bar. And then when, uh, it was, it became a Budweiser bar, the Clydesdales brought the first shipment of, uh, Budweiser to the bar. So, uh, and then of course, uh, fast forward to Prohibition, you had Anheuser-Busch opening establishments in town trying to promote beer as a family drink to try to separate it from the saloons and the distillers. And as a result, we still have some of those structures in St. Louis today with 
places like the Feasting Fox and uh, the Bevo Mill, which is now known as Das Bevo. Yeah. When did the Clydesdale, uh, Clydesdales come into the picture? The Clydesdales came into the picture after Prohibition. So mm-hmm. it was a part of their Budweiser's uh, big promotion to, uh, you know, when beer is back and, and the Clydesdales were uh, arrived to deliver the beer. So. Didn't they, if I remember the story cor- correctly, didn't uh, Gussie Bush take the Clydesdales to Washington when the prohibition was over? I believe so. He, I know it, it is in the book, uh, but he did. There's a there's a great photo of him and uh, and two other Bushes shipping the very first case hmm. of Budweiser to them. I don't think he personally delivered it, but he had one in, on on route as soon as that went through. So, what? How did Anheuser Busch survive? Prohibition. I mean, that went on what thirteen years or so. It's a great story. They uh, mm-hmm. Anheuser Busch just and you know a couple other breweries like they say you know uh, Falstaff, which was owned by Papa Joe Grisadek at the time, kind of did the same thing. Uh, but Budweiser sold soft drinks. Uh, they sold products such as uh, malt nutrine for expecting mothers. Uh, but really, what I think really did it for them is they sold their own malt, and that allowed people to have an ingredient to make their own beer at home. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, but of course, uh, Anheuser-Busch, uh, you know, they even made their own soft drinks. One, one was named Bevo, um, but they were uh, the only brewery, other, although Falstaff uh, did make it as well, but those are the only two that made it through. Boy, and so we're talking how many that went under during that uh, period of time, do you think? I think I, <clears throat> I think the exact number, if I remember, is around 33 breweries closed in Prohibition, and eight of them uh, either reopened or new breweries opened when Prohibition mm-hmm. uh, was repealed. So. Why uh, do you think Anheuser-Busch was so successful? Was it, was it just the marketing? Marketing had a lot to do with it. Uh, you know, I was reading actually. Uh, I was doing taking some notes on uh, how, for example, Grisadek Brothers was a very popular brewery uh, that came to be after in the years after Prohibition. And I was reading this remarkable story how uh, when the, the St. Louis Cardinals went up for sale uh, in the 1950s, they were given first crack at the uh, radio or basically buying the team. And they decided not to, you know, you know, take that. And Anheuser-Busch jumped right in mm-hmm. and said, we're going to buy the St. Louis Cardinals. All of a sudden, Harry Carey is no longer promoting Grisadek Brothers during games. He's promoting Budweiser. Uh, and they really just did a great job of also expanding the, the, the business throughout the United States by opening new breweries. While uh, on the flip side, you had Falstaff whose really process was buying failing breweries and uh, Anheuser-Busch was opening these new breweries with state-of-the-art equipment and it was efficient. You mentioned Harry Carey. There's a funny story that when he unceremoniously departed from the Cardinals team and he went up to Chicago, his first news conference had him drinking a Schlitz. (laughs) Right, right. He had a falling out with Anheuser-Busch and uh, and, and I I read that exact uh, fact in the story I was reading yesterday. I'm sure the boys on Pestalozzi really loved that. We have a caller who wants to get into this conversation, so let's bring Jerry in. He's calling from O'Fallon. Jerry, thanks for being with us. You're on the air. Well, good afternoon. Uh, very few things, I, uh, very few subjects I'd like to talk about more than beer. <laughs> um, I just returned from Germany, 
and uh, Germany and uh, England. I'm not sure of um, possibly France, but a lot of countries over there uh, still have like vertical integration where a restaurant will be uh, an, uh, an Augustina restaurant or a Hofbräu restaurant, um, and they will uh, serve only that beer from that particular brewery. And um, same thing in, you know, in uh, England where, you know, there are several varieties of beer at any pub you go into, but they all come, you know, a pub is, is aligned vertically with a particular brewer. So you can't get, say, if London, you know, you get London's pride if it's a fuller house, uh, but, uh, you know, everyone else has their own different brand of bitters. So I thought that's kind of interesting. And um, also with Anheuser-Busch, I remember for years their slogan was, making friends is our business. And I think their marketing, including the, the purchase of the Cardinals, and the fact that they have always made a point of, of um, talking about all the work that goes into their product. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that uh, Budweiser was one of the most expensive beers to produce, and this was, you know, written by someone who obviously knew, like, craft brew, and saying for something that is barely, you know, distinguishable from, you know, what you'd call the, you know, factory-type lagers, uh, they put a lot of effort into it. And uh, they also, you know, make a consistent product even across several breweries across the country, which is not an easy thing to do. Jerry, thank, thank you. you. For, thank you for the call. He's obviously done done his research. Maybe you'll bring him aboard for uh, for the fourth edition. For the, for the fourth edition. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the craft brewers here in mm-hmm. St. Louis, a very important part of the story. How many of them are there now? Well, I did expand uh, the footprint mm-hmm. and worked with the St. Louis Brewers Guild. And so we actually, uh, I, I put every single brewery that was open mm-hmm. Uh, when I was able, when I handed in my deadline or my manuscript on the deadline, I think I counted 72. And that's with about a hundred mile radius of St. Louis. So I got Southern Illinois in there. I've even got Rolla in there, but they're all part of this big community. And, uh, um, and they're just, there's so many creative brewers out there that are just doing these different remarkable things with, with beer today. Why do you think this is happening now? Uh, well, I, you know, it, there is, everybody loves craft beer these days. Mm-hmm. You know, we have switched back from lager being the, the dominant style, uh, you know, 150 years ago to ale now being, uh, the, the dominant, you know, people are ordering mm-hmm. IPAs and, and so forth, uh, to the chagrin of some traditional beer drinkers. But, um, but there's just so much diversity happening and, uh, you know, from, in, but once again, we have some really larger brewers that are, um, you know, you get you can order a Schlafly Pale Ale, and it, you know, it's almost as common as finding a Budweiser today. But then there are guys like Side Side Project Brewing in Maplewood that are just, you know, pushing the boundaries and doing just really creative stuff. I guess Tom Schlafly really got the ball rolling on that. He did in 1991. It was the first brewery to open in St. Louis in more than 50 years. And uh, he he got it all going. How are the big boys reacting to this? Is it happening all over the country? It, it is. Uh, I think you know. I, I actually I haven't really researched that topic a whole lot. But I think they are um, more accepting than uh, you know. They're definitely aware that it's happening, and they, they're not. I don't. I really don't think they're putting up much of a fight against it, and just trying to do their own thing. Well, there is also a uh, a brewery, relatively new, a non-alcoholic beer. Mm-hmm. Is that really a beer? It, it 
<laughs> yeah, I think it is. Uh, well, it tastes a lot like it. I, yeah. Wellspring is the name of it. It's pretty uh, darn well-being. good. Well-being. Well-being, yes, yep. I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, I think so. They're in the Brewers Guild, so I put them in the book. And uh, But yeah, I think that's a perfect example of – you know, this guy, see the, the head brewer, the owner, found, see, thought that there was a market for because he loved the taste of beer, but he stopped drinking himself. And uh, in, it really is the best non-alcoholic beer I've ever had. It certainly beats O'Doul. So. Yeah, and yeah. our time is running out, but he and his wife were on the show once. And they talked about going back to the German roots. They mm-hmm. bought some equipment from Germany that mm-hmm. gave them the opportunity to really match the taste of real beer in a non-alcoholic form. Yeah. I'm going to have to end it in a moment. Any any quick myths about beer that you can tell us about in 30 seconds? Oh, quick myths. Uh, I, I would probably – like we've kind of already talked about it, but um, this, the history of beer in St. Louis is much more than Anheuser-Busch. They play a big role – but this city has hundreds of breweries with wonderful stories to tell. Well, your book is a wonderful book. It's a beautiful ta- uh, coffee table edition, and it's uh, just great job on it, Cameron. Thank you very much. Cameron Collins, co-author of St. Louis Brews, The History of Brewing in the Gateway City. Podcast episodes of St. Louis on the Air are available at stlpublicradio.org, or you can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, the new Google Podcast app, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening. I'm Don Marsh.